Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt and taxes and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, with a love of fantasy books and funk, and a hatred of running more than three miles, Dave Denniston. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. And I am honored to have here on the show a very acclaimed gentleman. Uh, we here, we love to talk about taxes. We love to talk about debt. And this gentleman has a experience in all of those things. He is someone who is known as America's money answer man. Maybe one day I can aspire to be like him. He's been doing this for over 35 years, uh, been writing for Money Magazine for 18 years, was an analyst for NBC News for nine years, and so there's no pressure on him at all. He's written 14 books. I have to catch up. Who is this man? His name is Jordan Goodman. Welcome, Jordan, to the podcast. Great to be with you, David. All right, Jordan. Well, uh, I gave a great thumbnail sketch of you and all of the accolades and, and things you've accomplished in your life. Uh, anything else we should know about you? I love to help doctors and dentists, uh, medical professionals in all kinds of ways. Done lots of speeches around the country to them, and I kind of understand their particular needs. So I'm really glad the particular focus you have on your podcast, and we're going to try to give some very sp specific, practical advice to help them get out of debt do better in their taxes, uh, just get better deals all kinds of places. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to really making a difference in your listeners' lives. I love it. I love it. Well, I know we're going to get some great info out here today, Jordan. And uh, I'm curious, as you've you mentioned that you've been around the country, obviously you have a ton of experience in this. Uh, how do you think about doctors and dentists today? What do you think about the white coats out there? Well, they have uh, tremendous expertise and intelligence, um, but they don't have time. And so, uh, and they get distracted, or, or they're they're concentrating on their patients, which is a good thing, but it means they often don't take care of themselves, and so uh, they don't get into the right habits in many cases, uh, and they also have what I would call the God complex. You know, they're making life and death decisions all yeah. the time, and so hopefully they're making mostly right decisions and and correct keeping people alive. But it's kind of a, that follows into the financial world. They kind of have a similar, like, well, I can research this and make the right decision and save the life, my own life in this case, I guess you might say. Um, and, and sometimes that's okay, but sometimes it's not. And they make decisions uh, that turn out to be bad decisions for them in, in investments and in taxes and debt decisions. Um, and it's often they don't have the expertise. They just don't have the time to get the expertise in the financial world. So they rely on people who may or may not be reliable. There's a lot of financial advisors that have not been reliable. I did a story when I was at Money Magazine for many years ago about how dentists and doctors are the most ripped off people because they got the most money in the least time. So right. I think that's still true to some extent in the financial world. Well, what's, what's so interesting, we were talking with Carrie Reynolds recently from the Hippocratic Hustle podcast. And in that episode with, with Carrie, one of the things we talked about is just this attitude that doctors are trained up with to accept what people are saying. 
in many ways. Yeah. That you don't question the authority of the people you are training with. And I think that translates to so many areas in their lives. You know, if they say jump, you say how high, right? You know, yeah. you, you're, you have to take care of these things immediately. And so I think that that's one of the things that, that we're working on overcoming with this education that we're providing to physicians. And Jordan, one of the things I'd like to focus in this podcast episode on is taxes. Sure. I've noticed that, that one of the most potentially popular topics I look at top downloads is taxes. Any episode we have about taxes, I see this big spike sure. going on in sure. downloads. So I would love to know, Jordan, as we look at here, we're in September of 2017 as we record this, and we've been talking for a year practically now since President Trump has been elected, whether people agree or disagree with it, it is what it is, of a a package coming through of some sort of tax relief. I'm curious to, to get your thoughts at this particular moment in time, uh, subject to tame, change, I'm sure. Uh, what do you make of taxes and tax changes? What do you see coming down the pike? I don't think it's going to happen. That's my point of view. It's being done in a very partisan way, and it usually doesn't work that way. And you need enough votes to get this thing through, and it's very, very controversial in itself, and also it's controversial in its effect on the federal budget. You just can't blow a huge hole in the federal deficit by cutting taxes so much and not having the revenue at a time we already have $20 trillion in debt, <laughs> okay? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, just to give you an example, the last time we had major tax reform was 1986 under President Reagan, and you might remember at the signing table Behind him was Bill Bradley, Tip O'Neill, Dick Gephardt, Dan Rostenkowski, you know, all these major Democrats who were part of that transition, and it took a year and a half of tremendous negotiation, and it was extremely bipartisan, and it still got done, but that's the last time we've had anything like that. To do what they're doing right now is to have it in secret and have a completely partisan effort where the Democrats are not going to have any part with it whatsoever. It's not going to happen. I just don't think it's going to work. So uh, I know there's lots of talk about it. I think there are things that could be done that would make things better. Uh, but as we speak right now, uh, the calendar's kind of running out. I don't see any bipartisanship on almost any issue. And the that's my bottom line. I do not think we're going to get major tax reform this year or, frankly, in 2018 when we start getting into the election season. Well, it seems like Trump has, has shifted a little bit in terms of reaching out to, to at least some Democrats to a degree as we look at the, the Dreamers and some of those kinds of, of things, uh, which... A little we'll bit, see, but the Democrats we'll do not want to cut taxes. They don't want to cut the top marginal rate from 396 down to whatever he's talking about, 35 or something like that. Maybe they want to cut business taxes a little bit. Currently, it's 35%. Maybe they'll go to 28 they're not going to go to 15, which is what he's talking about, right? They don't want to get rid of the estate tax, uh, which Trump wants. I could go through a series of things that the Democrats are vitally opposed to. And the only way to get something through, I mean, the Republicans have 52 votes in the Senate, uh, is to do what's called reconciliation, which is you get through 51 votes. But it's very narrow and it's very difficult to do. Uh, and I just don't think they're going to – there's enough – um, conflict within the Republican Party about what the tax reform would look like that I just don't think they're going to get 51 votes as they did not get 51 votes in repealing Obamacare. They thought they were going to, they'd been campaigning on that for seven years and they didn't get that yeah. through either. So yeah. taxes is even more complicated and huge amounts of lobbying power for every little tax break 
in there, there's going to be somebody. I'll just give you one major example. Uh, city and state uh, taxes are now deductible, mm-hmm. uh, and they're talking about getting rid of that to fund lower tax rates. Well, every high-tax state, California, New York, Pennsylvania, Michigan, you name it, is going to fight to the absolute death for that state tax deduction, okay? And so that's just one example of many, many where there's, it's really hard to get things done in the tax code. And to, to fund lower rates, you've got to ox, you know, get somebody else's gourd, gore somebody else's ox, I guess you might say. And they don't like their ox gourd, and so that's why I just don't think it's going to happen. Well, what we're talking about there, if people aren't, aren't familiar with what we're looking at, is there's really two different ways that people can take deduction on their taxes. One is itemized deductions. The other is a standard deduction. And so when, when we're looking at uh, something like state taxes, state income taxes, that happens with an itemized deduction. Um, and there's there's been talk about whether or not you're going to do it with charitable giving or not. Obviously, there's pressure on that. Yep. Um, I was wondering, and I don't know, Jordan, I haven't looked at the numbers. When it comes to estate taxes, uh, how much in revenue does that raise every year? Do you have any clue? A lot. I mean, you're talking about, you mean, how much do they lose from it, the state tax deduction? Is that what you're talking about? No, 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 the, the estate. estate. Oh, estate. estate. Oh, estate tax. Doesn't raise that much, actually, because everybody who's smart and rich finds a way around it. That's what it comes down right. to. I mean, the yeah. exemption is over $5 million, so it affects less than 1% of the population anyway. And anybody who's in that category has got trusts and all kinds of ways of getting the money passed from one generation to the next without paying estate taxes. So it's it's relatively minimal. What's really big is the industry to avoid estate taxes. <laughs> Those are the people who would get hurt by this. So uh, it's it's not a big revenue item, um, but it, it's, it weighs heavily in people's minds who are doing well, like doctors, because they're worried about not being able to pass on what they've built up to their kids. Well, and it probably hurts the people that are more six or seven million in, in a state. That's per person. So you're talking about the 10 million for a total estate, I suppose, right. between husband and wife. Um, what do you make of um, dividends, capital gains, taxes? You know those kinds of things. Do we do we see those staying the same too? Not not changing at all. Well, we've actually raised them recently. Uh, you know, it had been fifteen percent. Now, for higher income people, it's up to twenty percent. You right. want to encourage investment, and the way you do that is you encourage ca- lower rates on capital gains than you do on regular income. Uh, the capital gains rate got down to 15%, and it, it really made the stock market boom. And I think that's a smart idea to do. Now, part of what they're talking about with all these taxes is lowering rates and getting rid of deductions and credits. Maybe they would that would be one of the things they do is equalize regular income and capital gains. I think it would be a mistake to do that because you really need investment capital to flow, and you've got to give it an incentive to do so. And that's one of the best incentives out there because you don't have to pay a capital gains tax until you sell the stock. So you control when you pay that tax. It's very sensitive to tax rates. When they lower rates, uh, people sell more. (laughs) When they raise rates, people sell less. So it creates creates more liquidity in the markets when you have lower capital gains rates. And it helps fund companies. I mean, a classic example is in the late 90s, in 1997. At that time, they cut the rate from 28% to 20%. Uh, the so-called Kemp Roth run, and that funded the internet boom of the late 90s because of all these companies that became the dot-coms and all that. 
When you lower rates, you give people more incentive to invest and take risk, and that's the capital you need to make the fastest part of the economy grow. So it's the same kind of thing. So I hope they don't get rid of that differential. Again, I'm saying I don't think there's going to be any tax changes actually happen, but they'll be throwing that out there as a possibility. Well, just to talk through the numbers a little bit, I have a little cheat sheet here in front of me on this. Right now, in terms of capital gains, if your taxable income is below the 25% bracket, there's actually 0% capital gain. Right. Zero. That's right. And so that's why I often emphasize to folks, if you inherit a position or, or have a position that maybe your grandma or grandpa had bought for you when you were a baby, when you are a resident, that is a great time to take the capital gain because you're not making a whole lot of money. So I know that's not a whole lot of people, but there are people out there that affect. So I just want to make sure everyone is aware that there is a 0% cap gain when you are below the 25% bracket. Secondly, if you are uh, at or above the 25% bracket, but below 39.6, you're at 15%. And then we get into that 20% bracket. If you're making lots of money, uh, like our orthopedic surgeons and right. neurosurgeons, those kinds of people, 20% plus, which there's actually another 3.8% tax the, the, on that, the, which is the, the bigger, so one of the ones that we're trying to get rid of, right? With that's correct. The, uh, well, that's, the, the, Obamacare. that's the Obamacare tax. That's right. Part of the repeal of Obamacare was getting rid of that 3.8% surcharge on high-income uh, people. That's right. But I don't think that's going to go through either, frankly. I'll tell you the really big tax cut, the biggest of them all, is stepped-up basis when you somebody dies. You, you bought a stock years ago at $10, and now it's $100. And when you die, people inherit that stock at the current market price of $100, and that entire $90 is never taxed. That's the big tax cut. Now, if they change that one, they'd raise some real revenue on that one. Uh, so we'll have to see. And I think that wouldn't be the worst idea, uh, because it is a little bit unfair for you to get the basis now when your grandmother bought it, you know, many years ago at a lower price, that gain, which normally would be taxed, is never taxed that way. So that's the really big tax hit that they might might make. Well, I know one of the other things when they're talking about corporate tax reform that, that I thought was interesting, I personally have a subchapter S corp, yep. so S corp. And, so do I, uh, yeah. And I understood they were actually looking at potentially there's with the S Corp, you know, you have the W-2 wage, you pay yourself just like a normal employee. Then you have the pass through. And I, I believe I heard one of the things they're trying to negotiate is a pass through being zero, right. uh, paying no income tax. That's on right. that. is, because is they're that, trying to encourage small businesses to form. And that's where all the jobs come from in this country. So if you can get small businesses to keep more of their income and not pay as much in tax. They are the ones that tend to hire the most. Now, that's the good part. The bad part is it could be a gigantic loophole. Everybody becomes a subchapter S corporation, and they never pay any taxes. Uh, you know, you're, everybody would become a sub S, basically. So they've got to work it so it, it is doing what it's supposed to doing, encourage small business formation and job growth, but not convert existing employees to have everybody become a corporation and avoid taxes. That's what they've got to figure out. Right. Yeah. You just, uh, you're making $100,000, you pay yourself a $15,000 wage. Right. I, it has to be quote unquote reasonable. Uh, that may not be reasonable, but I can imagine so many people trying to, 
to do that, especially. If That's you right. This is no what accountants connection. are all about, is figuring out the loopholes. And that would be the, the giant loophole of all time if they made that too easy for people to qualify. Now, I have a subchapter S myself, and everything basically passes through uh, to my personal income, and I pay things on my personal income, and I pay uh, in, you know income tax that way. That's a legitimate way of doing it. But you don't want to convert existing kind of regular employees into corporations to avoid those taxes. Right, right. But, and one of the things that I think, as we talk about taxes, I'd be remiss not to mention, of course, is is the third rail, right? Entitlements, Social Security, yep. Medicare, um, things like that. Medicaid, and yep. As, as we look at shifting wins, uh, certainly I think with uh, President Trump's popularity being super low and uh, looking three years out from now, which is a long ways away in the political world, uh, I, I would really conjecture at some point that we have to figure out what to do about Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. And I know we keep on kicking de- the can down the road. Nobody wants to change anything uh, except adding more benefits. And um, Well, I mean, they so- tried. You know, as part of the repealing Obamacare was a major, major change in Medicaid, which is hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, and making block grants to the states. And the end result of that is millions of people literally would not get insurance through Medicaid anymore. I, I call it not Obamacare, but it was Obamacade, okay? Because the majority of the people, 20 plus million of the people that got insurance got it through Medicaid, okay? So that was an attempt to have a major change in the entitlement of Medicaid. And that's one of the reasons it got shot down is there was so much complaint about how many people are going to get thrown off of Medicaid. So you are completely right. We need to reform these things. They're railroads that are out of control, but politically really, really difficult to do Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. I would say the federal government basically does three things. It's an insurance company that does these entitlements. It does the Defense Department, and it pays interest on the national debt. And the rest of it is a rounding error when you get down to it. So you've got to have something, because otherwise these things are going to go under. The official uh, reports from you know Medicare and Medicaid is that they're crossing over. They're, they're spending a lot more than they're taking in on income now. And within five years or so, they're just not going to be able to continue at the current pace. Social Security crosses over at about the year 2030, meaning there's not enough people paying in for the number of people getting paid out. 10,000 people a day turn 65 and get get uh, Social Security. So that's nice. But when they started it in 1936, there were 36 people paying in for everyone they're collecting. So the demographics are against that as well. But I mean, we've seen this happen in other countries, uh, Greece, um, Spain, uh, Japan. I mean, places that have old populations are getting crushed by these entitlements. And I, I mean, politically, it'd be nice to say something different. I don't really see that changing. All right. Well, let's take a pause here for a second and go to our commercial break. Maybe you're sitting here right now wondering, how am I ever going to be able to pay off this debt? Or maybe you're thinking, I am so confused by this financial lingo. I need to get a better handle on this financial stuff. Or maybe you are thinking of buying your first home, getting a new job, or Maybe you are wondering how you can keep insurance cheap. And that's why, my friends, this month I have a very special announcement for you. My newest book, 
The Young Physician's Guide to Money and Life is about to become available. We've been at this for years, and it is coming out soon. The Young Physician's Guide to Money and Life. This book is over 300 pages, and it is packed with tons and tons of actionable content. It's pretty much everything you need to think about financially, whether you're a medical student, a resident, a fellow, a newly minted attending, or even a longer-term practicing physician. So here's what you need to do. Text Dr. Book to 44222, and I will let you know the second it is available to buy. As a matter of fact, I'll even give you a discount. This book, my friends, it's co-authored with past podcast guests, John Apino from Contract Diagnostics and Amanda Liu from Dr. Wise Money. When you buy the book, you are not only investing in your financial future, you are also taking part in a really important charitable mission. And that's because the profits of the Young Physician's Guide to Money and Life will be given to the Physician's Support Initiative and to the college funds for Amanda's daughter. And we're doing this because you may remember that Amanda tragically passed away about a year ago. And this charitable mission is being done in her memory. Because this charitable mission is so, so, so important to me, I'm only going to offer this discount through the end of the year. And then we're going to sell the book at retail price because we want to raise as much money as we possibly can. So to snag your copy now, text Dr. Book to 44222. Again, text Dr. Book to 44222. And now back to the show. So with all of this being said, with, with basically the thought of nothing's going to change right. anytime right. In, in the near future, um, since, since we're headed towards the end of the year and the beginning of 2018, what do you think that we should be doing now uh, to prepare for the following year? As far as taxes you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So several things you can do. First of all, when you come into December, certainly make mm-hmm. charitable contributions uh, by the end of this year, not only in cash, but in kind. You can give us a painting or, you know, some kind of high antiques or something like that and get a, as long as it's appraised, get a nice uh, tax deduction for that. Uh, certainly take full advantage of um, employee benefits. So put as much as you possibly can into uh, these kind of retirement-oriented plans. And you can do that, uh, you know, save some money that way. Another thing Absolutely. you can do to save on taxes uh, is insurance. And if you do it right, life insurance can be a great, legitimate tax shelter. Uh, my favorite, what I've got, is what's called an index universal life insurance policy. You put a lot... You just, you just, you just said a dirty word to a lot of physicians. Okay. The, the, the cash value life insurance. Many of them had, had, have had big problems with it. And, and the reason why I, too, tend to be against that, um, just to stop for uh-huh. a second, is just because um, when you have $300,000 in student debt, Yes, yes. <laughs> Getting something like that where you have to pay ten to $12,000 a year makes absolutely no sense. Now, if you've done all those other things that, that you were mentioning of getting the maximum tax deductions elsewhere and you, you have a whole lot of money saved and perhaps you, you've done some other stuff, then maybe these things can come into play. So I just want to encourage everyone as, as we look at kind of an order of stuff. Uh, to me, something like a cash value life insurance policy is at the very bottom of the I mean, list. What I, what I, uh, I, I, would, I agree with you to some extent, although I must say if you're younger, meaning 20s, 30s, something like that, and you've got a long time for that money to be compounding tax-free, not tax-deferred, but tax-free inside a good life insurance policy. It can work out very well because this is different than a traditional 
cash value kind of a policy, whole life as they would call it. This is tied to the stock market. So, uh, and there's typically a limit, like 12% a year, but when the stock market goes up, and it has been for the last nine years, basically, you can get some really good returns. That cash value is growing a lot faster than with a traditional whole life policy. And then when the market falls, you don't lose anything. When it goes down, you get a zero. So if, had you bought an index universal life, say, in 2006, you would have a great return in 2006, a great return in 2007. In 2008, you would have had a zero, but you wouldn't have lost your gains from previous years. And then 2009 to now, you would have had great returns almost every year and really build up tax-free. And then when you get to retirement, you borrow it out. You don't take it out. You borrow it out. Uh, and then the loans are repaid by the death benefit when you die. And you can also use it for long-term care and other kinds of things as well. So I'm not saying for all your money, but if you can start relatively young and have that thing compounding for 20, 30 years, with you're getting the index returns for the stock market, the S&P 500, it's really a powerful part of your portfolio that is tax-free. There's not a lot of other things that are tax-free. That's one of them. Well, we can agree to disagree sure. because uh, from, from, my, from my perspective, I think, number one, uh, the insurance company, they have to invest money in order to make these things work. And with interest rates being so low, um, they can play with the numbers. But I see it time and time again with these things that it starts out looking good, but then the the amounts that the money people can get, they, they play around with it so that the insurance company can make money. Yeah, the insurance uh, company and, makes money, no question about it. That's why they're capping the return on the upside, like 12%. What you're talking about more is universal life insurance, which was tied to short-term interest rates. And they, oh, no, they no, made no, all no. kinds of I'm, promises I'm, I'm, that I'm, didn't happen. I agree with you I'm, completely. I'm, I'm talking about the former yeah. <laughs> as well. Yeah. Uh, so, so both of those, I, I have seen that happen personally from from my end. And certainly, I don't know every single thing out yeah. there. But. So I agree with you on that. The, the other thing we just talked about, which I'd like to help people with, is student loans, because that is an enormous burden on doctors and people coming out with 300,000, just some gargantuan number of student loans. Even though their income may be high, it still takes a long time to pay these things off. So let me give two suggestions, if I can, on getting those under control a little bit. First thing, if you haven't already done so, consolidate them. You've got a whole bunch of different federal loans at different rates from different schools you went to. You can combine them all into one loan at the lowest possible interest rate. A website to help you there would be called consolidatecollege.com. It can be kind of complicated to do it on your own. They can help you do that. And a lot of people don't realize that they can actually refinance their student loans to typically in the 2 to 3% rate. Um, and you take your federal loans, your private loans, parent loans, all the different loans, which are much higher interest rates, combine them into one and pay them off much quicker because the interest rate is lower. A place that can help them there is called Credible, and you go to credible.com backslash money answers. You get 200 bucks off your first payment that way, but it's like a clearinghouse for about five or six different places that will refinance your student loans to lower rate, and then you look at them and see what the best deal is for you, and and that can help you pay them off quicker at, at a lower interest rate like that. Absolutely. Well, there's there's SoFi. Uh, one of the other big companies that we've had here on yep. the podcast in the past is uh, is Laurel Road, formerly DRB, that will allow residents to refinance. So they're not in practice yet. Right. Uh, and often those rates aren't as good. You know, you're looking at four and three quarters, five, five and a quarter, but that's still a heck of a lot better than the 6.8 that's right. that many physicians And on a have. big dollar amount <laughs> you're talking about. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Incredible is kind of like Orbitz in the sense that it, it's, uh, a, it's a clearinghouse. It has yep. many different lenders. It's a platform. It's not just one lender. That's correct. Which has SoFi as well. But is, 
but it's, it's also like orbits in that not every single one is listed either. So there's selected companies right. on the platform, uh, but a great one to take a look at in addition to the ones like a Southwest, if you will, that aren't on the platform, like a Yeah, a just DRB get what's or, best for you, but I really want people to refinance, you know, those student loans. And another one, I mean, the biggest mortgage, the biggest loan people are going to take is their mortgage. And a lot of people yeah. do not realize how quickly they can pay off their mortgage if they play the game the right way. You can pay off a 30-year mortgage in five to seven years using what's called the mortgage optimization strategy. Now, this is not something most people know about, and you're certainly not going to hear about it from your bank, okay, which has no interest whatsoever in telling you how you can pay your mortgage off faster. They want you to keep refinancing and starting a new 30-year clock all over again, okay? Yes. Um, so are you familiar with that strategy, or should I describe that a little bit? No, please do. I don't think we've ever talked about it okay. before. Okay. So the mortgage optimization strategy is kind of the complete opposite of what you normally see. The normal system is you've got a 30-year mortgage. You make the same payment for 30 years. The amortization table is right there in black and white when you sign the papers, but people are so eager to get the key, they don't even look at the thing. But basically, all the interest is up front, and the principal is paid very, very slowly. The first 10 to 15 years on a traditional mortgage Maybe you've paid off 10% of the principal, something like that, okay? And then when you refinance, you start a new 30-year clock all over again with the interest all up front, all right? So that's, and then meanwhile, the paycheck you get, any income you have, is sitting in the, the checking account earning zero. So this is what works very well for the banks. You give them your money for free in the checking account, and you pay them interest up front for many, many years, okay? Mortgage optimization completely reverses the tables and puts you in control so every day your money is working for you instead of for the bank. And the way you do that is you use what's called a home equity line of credit, a HELOC, which is a liquid line against your house. And in effect, you use it kind of like your checking account. You keep your money, which normally would be sitting in the checking account, in the HELOC, and HELOCs are based on what's called average daily balance. How much do I owe today? So the income that's in there is pushing your balance down every day, and therefore your interest is going down as your principal goes down at an accelerating rate. And then you're paying off the principal faster and faster, and literally within five or six years, you can have the whole thing paid off. There's a free website that can actually model it for you, which is called truthinequity.com. You go in there, you put in your numbers, your income, your expenses, your house, your existing mortgage, all those things to say, okay, based on what you're doing today, it's going to take you 28 and a half years to pay off your mortgage, whatever it may be. Based on the numbers you just gave us, it'll be six and a half years, whatever it comes out to be. And they show you step by step how to do it. Now, you are saving a huge amount. I've just saved your listeners 25 years off their mortgage, and for, the, for doctors, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars in needless interest on their existing level of income. It's the way you're flowing your money that makes a difference, not the amount of money. And th that could help an awful lot of people. Can you imagine a, a doctor is out of school at, say, 35, and his mortgage is paid off by 40 instead of 65? What a difference that's going to make in his life. Oh, it's huge. It's huge. And one of the things I certainly advocate on this podcast is being completely debt-free. So that, that's the goal we all want to get to. So let's dig into that a little sure. bit more. I'm curious, Jordan, in terms of, of, of how it works. So I understand, okay, you, you have a home equity line of credit, mm -hmm. correct, right. rather than a 30-year mortgage. Well, you have both. You're not getting rid you of your 30-year mortgage. You're paying it off faster. Okay, this is what's called yeah. the blended strategy, where say you have a, let's just make up some numbers while we're at it, okay? Let's just have a fun time. Let's say your house is worth 400000 and you have a $300,000 first mortgage on it at 4%. You've got a good rate on it, 
All right, so you are three hundred on that. So you have a hundred thousand of equity. So you would get a fifty thousand dollar HELOC, and you just open the thing so it's open and brand new. You would then write a fifty thousand dollar check on the HELOC because you can write checks on it towards the first. So now instead of owing three hundred, you owe two fifty on the first, right? Mm-hmm. And now you use the technique we just talked about to pay that 50 off in nine months, a year, whatever it comes out to be, because you're putting your income in there constantly, moving down your principal every day. So say a year later, you paid off that 50, and now you do it again. You write another check on the 50 towards the first. So instead of 250, you now owe 200. Another year later, you've paid off the 50. You do that four more times. Your first is now paid off. You pay off the 50, and in five, six years, depending on how the numbers work out, you have now paid off your complete mortgage. Does that make sense? I got you. I'm totally with you. So basically, what what you're having to do, uh, let's say that in this case, you have a $300,000 mortgage. Let's just use a number. I don't know what that would calculate out to be, but I'm just going to use a number of $1,500 a month just for fun. I think that's probably ballpark about, right? And um, so you have a $1,500 a month uh, minimum payment. You take out a fifty thousand dollar line of credit, so now the two hundred and fifty k balance moved from three hundred to two fifty, and you have a fifty thousand dollar line of credit. You're still having to pay fifteen hundred dollars a month minimum. Now notice that that fifteen hundred is is paying more principal because the same right. payment is now paying on two fifty instead of three hundred. So you're making progress on the, the HELOC side, and you're making faster progress on the first mortgage side at the same time. And then if you're wanting to pay off the HELOC, for example, if you wanted to do it in a year, that would be about $4,000 a month, uh, plus the interest. If you want to do it in two years, you're looking at about, let's call it $2,500 a month, something like that. Have to see how the numbers work. There are three things you need to make this work, and doctors have them for the most part. First thing, you got to have equity in your house. You can't borrow if you're upside down or if you're underwater. Second thing, you have to have a decent credit score, maybe 680 or higher, to qualify for the HELOC. And the most important thing is you need positive cash flow, more money coming in than going out during the month. And that positive cash flow every day is pushing down that HELOC balance. That's what really makes the difference. But you see how your money is working for you every day in pushing down your balance as opposed to the traditional system where your money is sitting in the checking account earning zero that the bank uses to lend out. And then you're paying interest for 30 years and then even longer than if you refinance. What a difference to have your money working for you instead of the bank. So Jordan, why not, and maybe I'm just not, not connecting the dots, why not just do, you know, if you're doing 4000 a month towards the HELOC and $1,500 a month towards the mortgage, why not just do 5500 a month towards, towards the, the, first, the mortgage to begin? Because it's not liquid. Yeah. So a, a traditional first mortgage, I like to say it's a one-way mousetrap. You can put money in, but you can't get money out. With the HELOC, it's a two-way mousetrap. You can put money in, but you pay your bills out of it as well. So when you've got that HELOC, you're not only making the HELOC expense, but you're paying all your bills out of the HELOC as well. So every dollar you've got is pushing your balance down every day. If you just keep throwing extra money towards your first, it'll help somewhat. Maybe it'll take a 30-year mortgage to 25 years, something like that. But it's not going to cut 25 years off your mortgage. It might cut five years off your mortgage. And meanwhile, it's hurting your current cash flow. Say you put an extra $1,000 towards your first, well, that's $1,000 you don't have to, to spend. You see, it's going to help you 25 years from now, but not now. Whereas we're using the HELOC, you've got the liquidity, and that money is helping you every day push your principal down. Interesting. Um, so this is something most doctors have never heard about. It takes a little bit of discipline, but what a payoff. Can you imagine that? And particularly if you have a big mortgage, to be able to pay that off in five or six years, 
Now then, after your mortgage is paid off, you still have the HELOC, so you still have access to your home equity. But what you can sure. do is to, I, I like to say, keep making a mortgage payment to yourself. Assets are growing. Um, you just, you're used to making mortgage payments. Just have it grow for you instead of the bank. So it, it's a transformational system a lot of people have never heard about. I did a book called Master Your Debt where I've got a chapter in there called Mortgage-Free in Five to Seven Years that I go into this in great detail. And it's really been very popular for a lot of people. That's great. Well, we'll make sure to link that in the show notes, Jordan. And one of the questions I always like to ask our guests is, as we wrap up is uh, doctors, as we kind of alluded to, they don't get uh, finances 101 anytime during medical right, school, right. Uh, let alone their, their undergrad. And uh, with yourself, I mean, you've certainly been writing and focusing on taxes and debt and saving. Um, what do you think is the number one business lesson that you would like to pass on to us? Get into the right habits instead of the wrong habits. Because doctors are busy, they're doing all their medical stuff, they're worrying about patients, and they don't think about themselves. And so if that's not gonna happen, set it up so automatically the right things happen instead of automatically have the wrong things happen, okay? So the right things are an automatic investment program. We just talked about mortgage optimization to pay your mortgage off faster, have your money grow tax-free. I, I think Index Universal Life is one way to do that. Um, paying down your uh, debts by you know, consolidating them at lower interest rates. These are things you could just do once or twice and just have them on automatic pilot doing the right thing. What a lot of people is they keep their money in, in a checking account earning zero. They might be paying credit card interest. They've got very high uh, student loan debt. They're just not paying attention to these things, and they're in the wrong habits. And particularly over a long period of time, the difference between wrong habits and right habits is hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. So that's basically what I would encourage people to do. That's great advice. I love it. Uh, as we as we close this out, Jordan, I, I want to round back to the tax sure. stuff. And one thing that I espouse, and I'm curious to, to have some dialogue with you on it, um, is I believe that the number one tax deduction that a person can have is by being a business owner. Absolutely. And some people have said, uh, "Do you is that really true? And I guess, of course, it depends on the business, but uh, that's why I am into acquiring businesses and having multiple streams of income and why I'm doing some of the financial experiments I am doing. Uh, what do you think? Well, that's am, right. Am I the, off track? The tax, code, uh, agree, the tax code is to encourage businesses to form, and that's correct because particularly small businesses are the places where people get hired, new ideas come and, and can grow. So you want to encourage those. So all kinds of things are deductible as a small business that they might not be deductible as an individual. You want to create the correct corporate entity when you're creating a small business. It could be a subchapter S, as we talked about. It could be a, a subchapter C, a kind of corporate entity. It could be a limited liability corporation, LLC. It could be a limited partnership, LP. Uh, whatever the structure, I would say set up a business at the beginning so that you can sell it down the road. And that's true with doctors as well and dentists. I mean, you don't just stop one day as a dentist and just disappear. You've got to kind of get a new dentist in there and uh, introduce him to the patients. And five years later, people feel comfortable to kind of stay with you. And the same is true with doctors to some extent. You want to be able to cash in on the equity you're building up over many, many years of treating patients. So it's the same kind of thing. If you have a business entity, that's going to help you to be able to do that. And meanwhile, you get all kinds of deductions and credits and tax incentives that you just don't have as an individual. 
Well, and if I can do anything with this podcast to encourage more physicians in this age where so many people are working for hospital systems, right. if we can encourage more people to, to be in private practice, to hang your shingle, or to acquire other businesses, uh, you guys, physicians, are the best and brightest as far as I'm concerned. And so yeah. you can do this stuff. Um, Jordan, any final thoughts from you as we wrap up the conversation here? Today? I'm always glad to get emails at moneyanswers.com is my website. I love to help people. As you can see, I like to give lots of resources and websites. There are some tremendous resources that can help people in the doctors and the dentist field. And I just gave a small sample of what's available today. All right, my friends. Well, there you go. You heard it from Jordan. We're going to make sure to link. He sent me a link for a whole bunch of different things that we will make sure to include in the show notes and make sure to check out his website, his books, and the whole bit. And so, my friends, if you have more questions, you want to be seeking more knowledge, I definitely encourage you to check out the podcast website at www.drfreedompodcast.com. And, of course, if you are loving this podcast and you are loving the information we have on here, I would encourage you make sure to reach out and review on iTunes. But even more importantly, grab your friend's iPhone and device and download your favorite episodes of the podcast so they can check it out. Well, thank you so much for tuning in with us. You can make sure to check in again with us at drfreedompodcast.com. For the Freedom Formula for Physicians, this is Dave Deniston. And remember, my friends, remember to slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Hey, this is Dave Deniston, and I hope you love today's episode. If you do and you want more ideas on achieving financial freedom, I am committed to helping you end your year right. And that's why, my friend, the last two months of the year here, I have a very special announcement for you. My newest book, The Young Physician's Guide to Money and Life, is about to become available. This book, The Young Physician's Guide to Money and Life, is over 300 pages. Yes, 300 pages. It's packed with tons and tons of actionable content. It's pretty much everything you need to think about financially, whether you're a medical student, a resident, a fellow, a newly minted attending, or even if you've been practicing for a long time. So here's what you need to do. Text Dr. Book to 44222. And I will let you know the second it is available, and I will make sure to give you an early bird discount. And as I may have mentioned previously, uh, this book is especially near and dear to my heart because we are going to have a charitable mission for this book. The profits of this shall go two ways. One way to the Physician Support Initiative that was founded by my co-author, Amanda Liu, who tragically passed away, as well as to her daughter to provide some money for college. This is so important to me, so I'm only going to offer this as a discount through the end of the year, and then we're going to be selling the book at retail price, my friends. To snag your copy now and get on the early bird list, text Dr. Book to 44222. Again, text Dr. Book to 44222. Thank you so much. Enjoy. <laughs>